holiday season coming up. We got a lot going on, but that that worship night on December 1st is going to be awesome. I don't know what you guys do to celebrate as families or set the tone for the season, but if you haven't been to one of those, make that a priority because every time it's impactful, and that'll just set the tone for all of December. I'm one of those uh, Christmas starts December 1st thing, so that's going to kick it off for me, right? I'll worship God, and then I'll go home blasting Christmas music all the way home. But uh, anyways, we are in a kind of mini-series uh, talking about the subject of service. And if you are here last week, we uh, preached a sermon called Rising Downward pointing to Philippians 2 and, and the, the path Jesus blazed as a trailblazer, going from the presence of God to being a servant. And, and we saw how, because of his service, God honored him. And, and just to, to enact that here as a church, we got people here that have been serving since the church planted, right, who have been faithful in service and looking to the needs of others over themselves. They show up early. They leave late. They plan during the week. They do all kinds of things to make sure Saturdays go smoothly, not just in here, but back in those rooms we don't see where the kids are being ministered to, back behind the tech booth where nobody looks except for when Nate references it or something goes wrong, right? That's when we look back there. But I just want to honor uh, uh, somebody who's been serving since day one, who's been a part of the worship team, who's been a part of the Kid Life team, been a little bit of here, there, and everywhere, and they're about to have a baby. So they're going to be taking a well-deserved break as they have their second child. But I just want to give this uh, Amazon gift card to Emily and, and Tyler. As Nate said, Tyler pulled double duty tonight, not just running sound, but playing the bass guitar like a boss. So, uh, but that was last week. We talked about this idea of rising downward in Philippians 2. If you're taking notes tonight, the sermon title is Downward Mobility. Downward Mobility. And if you've got your Bible or you've got your version app, you can mark John 13 verses 1 through 17. And then we're also, we're getting crazy. We'll also be looking at 1 Corinthians 12. Those are the two passages we'll get to tonight. Um, but in spite of like I said, I'm more of a December 1st Christmas guy. Steph threw up the Christmas tree this past week. Uh, it was after I fell asleep, couldn't stop her. Not like I was going to stop her anyways because uh, Raj, this is his first Christmas. So we're kind of making up for two Christmas trees he never had. So we probably should have thrown it up even earlier. But uh, I'm excited personally uh, for Thanksgiving. It's his first Thanksgiving with us, and it's kind of rare. The whole family is going to be able to get together. He's going to see every member on both sides up around Richmond and uh, I'm excited because there's Thanksgiving traditions. I don't know what yours are and elements of Thanksgiving that happen every year. When you think of Thanksgiving, for you and your family, what are some things that happen annually? Traditions, practices, naps, tryptophan comas, right? It's tryptophan, right? I'm probably even saying it wrong. Football. Black Friday shopping. No shame. Leftovers, right? Yeah, like pie. I don't eat pie any other time of the year, really, but I eat it for weeks straight because you eat pie for breakfast the next day, you eat it for dessert every night, and then breakfast the day after that. Mike. Yes, Mike, like a boss. Anybody else? Fried turkey, right? Multiple turkeys for my family. There's just so many of us. One's fried, one's in the oven, all, all different ways, shapes, and forms. But I like what Mike said, because when I was a kid, we grew up in the D.C. area. There's another family from that area. We would come together, and we'd form a big circle before we ate, and we'd pray. But we'd also go around the room, and everybody would list something that they're thankful for. We'd go around the circle. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for that. And, and that's one of the reasons I love Thanksgiving, right? 
I met a, a pastor from Asia this week, and he was like, yeah, that's your holiday. And it's kind of true because there's a history behind it, and it's American history. But I just love the idea of Thanksgiving because we're a culture that's way more in tune with entitlement than gratitude. And we're way more in tune with ambition than we are pausing to actually have some appreciation. And, and Thanksgiving can stir up gratitude, and if, we're, and if we do it right, gratitude stirs up praise. And I say do it right because let's remember this Thanksgiving season that every good and perfect gift that we experience, it comes from above. It's either going to spark pride or praise. You can be like, look at all the things I've accumulated. Look at the, what I've built. Or you can say, man, look at how God's been good to us. And that will spark praise. And it should spark praise. Now, I'm not really uh, on social media a lot. I'm not organized enough to do it. But some folks, they even uh, every day in November post something that they're thankful for. And it's beautiful because Facebook, a majority of the time for a majority of people, is just a place to complain about first world problems. And some people take the entire month of November to, to give praise and gratitude for the things that they experience in life. And that's a beautiful thing. And it's another reason that I love Thanksgiving. And sometimes I think our praise is lacking because we're more focused on the daily grind than all the daily reasons we have to express gratitude and thanksgiving. And again, we can do it every day, every season. And for I know some of us, the, the grind is real. Maybe you're in a tough season. Maybe you're in a valley where you're like, man, I just can't wait to get out. But it's a mark of spiritual maturity when you thank God not only on the mountaintops and in the good seasons, but spiritual maturity is shown when even in the valley, even in the tough spot, you can still say, I give God praise. God's still good. You read Philippians, and Paul says again and again about Showing joy and rejoicing. Man, he wrote that in chains, right? That's some spiritual maturity. And it's key because the Bible doesn't say uh, thank God for all things. Because that's easy to thank God for the things he's given you. It says thank God in all things. In every season, in every circumstance, you can thank God and you can praise him. And, and it's kind of like on Thanksgiving. You may, uh, you may be hungry, Waiting on that meal is about noon. My mom's Thanksgiving meal usually goes off at about 4 o'clock, right in the middle of the football games, but she doesn't care. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a moment where you're waiting, but you can smell that it's cooking, right? You know it's coming. And you may be waiting on the promise. You may be waiting out a tough season, but you can trust that, that God is working all these ingredients, all things for good, like it says in Romans 8, 28. You might see the ingredients of, of, of headaches, speed bumps, problem after problem, but you can trust that if it's in the pot, then it's a part of the plot. If it's in the pan, then it's a part of the plan that God is working all of these ingredients into something that's going to be good. And man, you read Hebrews 11, it might not even be in this life, but we know that there is a, a feast that's coming. Thanksgiving is good, but there's going to be a feast in heaven that's even better. You see it referenced in Matthew. You see it referenced in Revelation. And I'm about to get a little extra biblical, but I don't think it's going to be a heretical I believe when we get there and we're feasting that nobody's going to have to worry about doing the dishes. I don't know how they're going to get done. I don't know what's going to happen if they're going to get raptured and you'll get new ones. I don't know whether we get raptured because you're in heaven. See, it's just a, I don't know how to explain it. But I just believe in, in my heart of hearts that nobody's going to have to worry about that chore when we're in heaven. Because that's a part of Thanksgiving. You get done with the meal and right about when you're ready to take that nap and the, and the turkey's kicking in, the tryptophan, whatever it is, you realize, oh, man, somebody's got to help my mom do the dishes. Or she's going to say, you're doing the dishes. And nothing's worse than trying to do a household chore when it feels like you've been hit by a tranquilizer dart. Like, you're just falling asleep trying to do these dishes, clean all this uh, uh, glassware. And there's a lot because there's a lot of people. 
Again, that's a, an annual tradition that I don't think anybody looks forward to or anybody celebrates. But you talk about dishwashing. Last week we talked about the washing of feet. Now that's not a tradition, period, in our culture. But again, we looked at last week how in John 13, when Jesus pulls his disciples together for their last big meal together, before they get to digging in, he gets down on his knees, wraps a towel around his waist, and gets to washing their feet. And John's gospel gives a detailed account that I want to look at. Again, it's in John 13. If you were proactive, you're already there. If not, I'll give you a second. It's John 13, verses 1 through 17. And I'll have bits and pieces of it up on the screen, but you can read the full passage with me. And it starts and it says in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never, ever wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. And Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, a person who is bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, do you understand what I'm doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. Now, what's interesting when you read through John 13 and the Last Supper, that in the book of John, we don't get a detailed account of the institution of communion that we get in other books like the book of Mark. And it's been argued convincingly uh, by biblical scholars and people that write commentaries and study this stuff for a living that John realized that he was writing his gospel to a people that were already familiar with the gospel of Mark that had already experienced that gospel and were already familiar with this institution of communion. And we see in John 6 that, that John gives the account of Jesus talking about, you know, you have to eat of my flesh, drink of my blood, pointing to communion. So it's not like John forsook communion or didn't respect what Jesus introduced. But many would say he wanted to supplement and interpret the well-known tradition with theology that would give us a deeper understanding of the sacrament not seen elsewhere. So it's telling that in John chapter 13, verse 1, it hints that before they pulled out the Passover meal, before they got to digging in, that Jesus stepped aside, put a towel around his waist, and began to wash their feet. Now, if I stopped my sermon right now and pulled out a towel and some water and started washing feet, y'all be like, that's kind of weird. Especially if somebody came in off the street, didn't know the Bible, didn't know the history, they think that's that's kind of odd, right, to just stop 
and wash feet. Uh, it's probably not a practice you'll see outside of the local pedicure spot. And maybe some of you ladies are connecting the dots and looking at your husband like, see, it's biblical, right? Pedicures. Put it in the budget. But, I mean, we see Peter. He's taken aback in the moment. And it's not because, like, foot washing was some foreign thing to him. He's not like, Jesus, why are you washing my feet? Because it's weird, but because it was Jesus who was doing it. It wasn't abnormal to the disciples. Foot washing was common in that time because I explained last week, like, we wake up, we take a shower, wash our bodies, and then put socks on our feet. And before we ever go outside, and especially in the winter, we're putting shoes or boots over those socks, which are over our feet. So at the end of the day, we don't really need a foot washing, right? But in that time, people were wearing sandals. If that, on these dirt roads, their feet were next level gritty and grimy, right? So it was a token of hospitality to see somebody's feet washed when they entered your home or when you were going to share a meal. In Luke chapter 7, Simon the Pharisee hosts Jesus, and Jesus takes it as, as a gesture of hostility that he doesn't have his feet washed. And it was rightful in that passage. And it's not like Simon the Pharisee would have had to wash his feet himself. Usually the lowest person in the home, be it a child or a servant, would be the one washing the feet. You would rarely, never see Somebody of a higher standing washing the feet of somebody who was, quote, unquote, beneath them. But Jesus shows us that in a life of service and in a life of following him, nothing should really be, quote, unquote, beneath us. Certainly no person. Certainly no task. I've said it before. In the kingdom, man, if, if there's something, an act of service that is beneath you, then leadership will always be above you and out of your reach because we're called to servant leadership like Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 36, during this Last Supper account in Luke, we said this verse last week, among you it will be different. Those who are great among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Now, again, I said it last week. I'm not uh, one to say we should adopt foot washing into all of our services. Uh, some do, but I would say that we're called to adopt this posture of servanthood. That we're called to adopt this mindset of serving. And that's a big request, especially in our culture. And what's key, because it seems like a gamble, like if I'm going to put the interests of others above me and get on my knees, aren't they just going to walk all over me? But I love that in this passage in John, it even talks about what Jesus knew, that Jesus knew the authority he had in the Father. It says in verse 3. That his decision to wash the disciples' feet is rooted of, in his assurance of his relationship with God. He realized that ultimately he was gambling nothing because he had full assurance of his eternal standing with God. In Philippians 2 that we hit on last week, it says that he didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. That idea of rising downward. You know, in our culture, we talk all the time about upward mobility. Upward mobility is this ability to move from one social or economic level to the next. Many definitions boil it down to one's children being able to surpass their parents in terms of success or in terms of what they're able to do in life. You know, this was the dream of immigrants that showed up at Ellis Island with nothing, believing that coming to America, their children will be able to exceed them and be set up for success. This idea of upward mobility, this American dream. Recent presidents have spoken of the goal to improve upward mobility for all. As a nation, we cherish this idea of upward mobility to, if we work hard enough, be able to exceed our father or our parents. 
Yet Jesus, we see in Scripture and in the kingdom of God, he sought downward mobility. He had equality with his Father in heaven and yet forfeited that to serve others. We see that in our world we celebrate upward mobility. But in the kingdom we emulate downward mobility. Again, in the world, we celebrate and champion, and it's not a bad thing, this idea of upward mobility. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus gives us this example to emulate in his servanthood that emphasizes downward mobility. Again, this rising downward that we spoke of last weekend, modeled by this trail Jesus blazed from the throne room of heaven to a stance of a servant, to obedience even to the lowest form of execution on the planet, a cross. And it's fitting that right before the cross, he takes up the lowest form of service in his culture, the washing of feet. And then Jesus says in John 13, verses 14 through 15, as we read, Since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So if John includes this account to give us a deeper understanding of the Last Supper, then what does this tell us about the Last Supper and the Eucharist? And I would say... Tonight I want to look at one, and next week I want to look at something else. But tonight I would just say that if we're going to adopt this lifestyle of Jesus, if we're going to follow him with our life, then there's multiple perspectives that we need to adopt when we partake in communion and we partake in communion with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the first is we have to look in. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. When Paul is talking about communion in the church, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You know, we don't partake in communion for no reason. We don't partake in communion as a ritual. We partake in communion because we have a deep need. That's why Paul implored and commands us, before you take communion, reflect on your heart. Reflect on Christ's place in it. Examine yourself and honor the body of Christ. He says, before we partake, we should take account of the needs within us. But we see in John, it's after we partake, we should be aware of the needs around us. In John, after the Passover meal, Jesus reaffirms the statement he made with the washing of feet, saying, so now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. You know, if, if the golden rule is to do unto others as we would do unto ourselves or love others as we would love ourselves, this is like the platinum rule. Love others as Jesus loved us. Because our love is imperfect, both for other people and our love for ourselves. You know, sometimes we don't love ourselves as much as God loves ourselves in that moment. And Jesus is giving us this perfect example. Love each other as I have loved you. Not only washed your feet, died for you. Have that kind of love for one another. And again, in Philippians 2, 3, we get this model. In humility, value others above yourselves. And we can't have that perspective in our lives if we don't look around us. Look around to the needs that are around us. And when we look around us, we should be immediately surrounded by the family of faith, the, the, the believers that God has put in our lives. Are there people that don't believe that are around us? Absolutely. If your life doesn't have people that don't know Christ in your daily interactions, then, man, get out of your bubble, read the Great Commission a couple times in the morning, and go talk to some people, right? <laughs> but those people who counsel us, who rally around us, who challenge us, who, who keep us accountable in every season. Come on, those should be people that God has put around us in the family of faith. You know, we look around at Thanksgiving and we see family. At least I like it when that happens. This year it's going to happen, right? It's a time when friends and family, they come around the table together. 
And as he brought his disciples together at the Last Supper, we as the church are brought to the table of communion together as family. Man, when we take communion the first Saturday of every month, to me it's just beautiful. That we're this family of faith, worshiping God together, interwoven. We know each other. We're praying for each other. And if you're not a part of that, become a part of that. We're called to the family of faith. Jesus came and died so that we could be a part of the family of faith. It says in Romans 8.29 that the gospel saves us and conforms us into the image of the Son so that he would be the first among many brothers and sisters. It says in Ephesians 1.5, that God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Timothy 3, 5, it says, God's family is the church of the living God. And even just to rewind a bit, you know, we sang the song, um, No Longer Slaves. And I almost came up and grabbed the mic because the chorus is meaningful to me, and I'm forgetting the words as meaningful as it is, but I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You know, I... I would be a liar if I said I never struggled with anxiety, if I never struggled with fears. You know, faith is just being willing to face those fears. But most of my anxieties are tied to my job, my role as a father, my role as a husband. You know, I could fail in all of those areas, and I could end up, you know, it's not going to happen, but I could end up losing custody of Raj. I could end up losing my job. But one thing I can never lose is being a son of God. And I'm no longer a slave to fear when I realize I'm a son of God, I'm a child of God, and that can't be taken from me. There's a peace that comes with that. And I don't know who needed to hear that, but just, man, if you struggle with anxiety, you struggle with fear, yes, there's clinical depression that, that come on, we take steps to deal with. But, man, if it's just that anxiety that you wrestle with, man, think again about that identity you have as a child of God that nobody, and no failing, no matter how bad a day you have, at the end of the day, you're still a child of God. That just brings me so much peace, so that's free. But uh, the family of faith is one analogy for the church we see in Scripture. But uh, another illustration, one Paul uses again and again, is the body of Christ. And we see it in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27. And I want to turn there now. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 27. Maybe you're familiar, maybe you're not. But this is Paul speaking to the church in Corinth about how the church is a unit. And he says the human body has many parts. But the many parts make up one whole body. And so it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit. And we all share the same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that doesn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says I'm not a part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the most honorable parts do not require the special care. So so God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among the members so that all members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. 
And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you are a part of it. And it goes on to speak about gifts and roles within the church. Just like each part of your body has a different role and task, we all have different gifts of the Spirit. And I'll get into that later, but, man, you talk about the body of Christ. Begin to think about your own body, and we can fail to pay attention to the ways that we can serve our bodies here on earth and steward the bodies God has given us. And in our culture, we often claim to worry about health and, and champion health, but, man, how much do we compromise in terms of compromises and choices and habits with food or eating habits or exercise? And it's funny because after years or maybe decades of poor practice, we come to a doctor or a prescription drug, like, hey, fix it. Give me the quick fix, right? You ignore your body long enough, something's going to run down, right? It says in Luke 18 in the message version, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. <laughs> Raj, uh, I shared it last week. We were at the zoo in Norfolk the Monday before last one. And we had been there for an hour and a half. He loves it. We just let him loose. He's running around. He's this close to running, walking everywhere. And we've been there for a while again. And we were in the grass, and there were some roots, and he was walking, and he tripped on one root. It didn't just fall on his face. He fell flat, just didn't catch himself with his arms. It happened so fast. I was like, oh, that's going to hurt. And then I picked him up. I was like, oh, that's going to bleed because he had a huge gash here and had to go get five stitches. But I say all that to say when we first got Raj, he could barely crawl. Like, he could barely move. He was barely mobile. The kid could barely take food and put it in his mouth, but really one of the, the most beautiful things since we've adopted him and, and brought him, and he's been a part of his family, is just the mark of mobility. He's, he's walking, he's, he's almost running, he's climbing now, falling off things and getting giant knots in his head, um, but he has mobility. It's a, a mark of growth and maturity in a child when they can go from not being able to move to moving around on their own. But then it's also a mark of illness, or disease when we begin to lose mobility. And when you lose mobility, it can lead to a loss of activity. But we're called as the body of Christ to be active, to be God's hands and feet in this earth. And when we lose our activity, it's usually because we've lost our mobility. And, and the mobility that's missing is often the downward mobility. Because again, we live in a culture where upward mobility is a blessing, and that's not a bad thing in and of itself. But so often the American dream has infiltrated the good news to where we've adapted the good news to kind of resemble the American dream. Where God's dream for us is to lead us into comfort and material prosperity. Follow Christ, you'll find prosperity. Kind of forget the whole take up your cross, die to yourself daily that we see in Scripture. See, God doesn't bless us to improve our standard of living. Sometimes that happens, right? We thank him for that every Thanksgiving. But that blessing we receive in our lives, sure, it's a good thing. It's nothing to be ashamed of, but it's something to be aware of and let God use. Because you begin to realize that, that God doesn't bless you to improve your standard of living. God blesses you to improve your standard of giving. Right? He blesses us. We have a great standard of living, but we're blessed to be a blessing. And one of the ways we're a blessing is to give that out in service. Again, Jesus didn't consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. He had a great standard of living by the throne of God. Didn't consider it something to be used to his own advantage, but gave himself to the life of a servant. When I talk about giving, I'm not just talking about money. I'm not talking about tithes. I'm talking about time, talents, uh, just you. You're a gift. You're a gift to the church. All the members, it says in 1 Corinthians 12, should care for each other. No part of the body is independent. 
No part of the body is totally dependent, offering nothing. Each one shows up, each one plays a role. The Christian life is that of a body. Not just an overall analogy, but bodies, flesh and blood coming together. But it's funny, even our language in the church sometimes works against this. We so often talk about our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, that's a thing, but we fail to mention the interpersonal connections we're called to within the body of Christ. And it's why we see the chorus in our culture, especially of the current generation, where they'll say, I'll follow Christ. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But don't bother me about going to church or or being a part of organized religion or any kind of meeting with other believers. It's this disembodied lifestyle that is kind of a result of the digital age. I mean, I shared it last summer. Texts are now more frequently used than phone calls in the U.S. Everywhere along the way, we're losing the ability to connect face-to-face, even voice-to-voice in a phone call. Because in a real-time conversation, public speaking, there's the possibility you stumble over a word, say something stupid, say something you didn't mean to say, and you want to put your foot in your mouth. But when you're texting, when you're writing an email, you can edit. You can, oh, I don't want to say that. Delete that. Rewrite it. You can carefully edit. And we like control over risk. We like to choose edited over authentic. So rather than coming face to face, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart at the local body of Christ, we might podcast, right, watch a live stream, watch Hillsong Channel on the TV, None of those are bad things. I do all three of those things quite often. But embracing that and that alone, it leads to this disembodied spiritual walk when we're called to the body. If we don't connect face-to-face or voice-to-voice, who are we really connected to heart-to-heart? Or ligament-to-ligament when you begin to talk about the body. It would serve as well to remember that the word religion itself is derived from the same root as the word ligaments, referring to that which binds us together. Independence is foreign to Christianity. You know, for Raj, as I raise him in a lot of ways, I'm going to try to push him from dependence to independence, right? (laughs) When he's 28, you know, I want him to be independent, not living within our basement, right? You know, like I want to be able to push him towards independence in life, but spiritually and in the kingdom of God, we grow not to this independence, but to interdependence, the body of Christ. It's this idea, it's been spoken of many places, but in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, this book by Stephen Covey, he says, life is by nature highly interdependent. To try to achieve maximum effectiveness through independence, it's like trying to play tennis with a golf club. Or if you're thinking about the body of Christ, it's like trying to play tennis without hands. It's trying to see without eyes, trying to hear without ears, smell without a nose, or walk without feet. You know, as a man, my feet are uh, out of sight and out of mind often. I don't Go to get pedicures, I probably never will. Yet I can't take them for granted, right? You know, I don't think about them until I go on a long run and realize my running shoes are old and my feet end up hurting for days. You can take them for granted, but after a while, they'll start hurting. Again, those, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12 and in life, sometimes those parts of the body that aren't seen are some of the most important. Think about it. When's the last time you admired your actual heart? Or, or your brain, or complimented somebody on their lungs. You don't because they're unseen. Yet those are some of the organs that we hurt the most when we fail to take care of our body. You know, the body of Christ. You talk about this local gathering. Some of the people that play the roles that are unseen, behind the soundboard, behind those doors, the folks that show up before any of us are here, setting up, tearing down. They stay later than anybody else. We don't see that if we just show up and leave But them being less visible doesn't make them less valuable. They're a gift to the body. But those are the folks that get hurt 
when other people just consume. We have to be mindful of that. We can't forget that there are roles to be played. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, all of you together are Christ's body, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Each one of us has a role to play. Each role is important. There's no small service. The phrase, quote, unquote, just a volunteer should just be erased from our vocabulary. It all matters. Jesus washed the disciples' feet like a servant so that we don't forget the people that faithfully serve. Jesus washed feet so we don't forget our call to serve within the body of Christ. The church is an all-hands-on-deck, every-member ministry of interdependence. It wasn't designed to be one big mouth with a bunch of ears, which if we look at a weekend service, sometimes that's what churches morph into. Have your kid draw a picture of a body with one big mouth and a bunch of ears and then ask them, how is that body going to get around, right? That body's not going to be very mobile. <laughs> it's not going to move around. That's weird. I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just imagining a body with one big mouth and all ears, like something out of Ezekiel, those visions he had were just ridiculous, yes. But unfortunately, it's what a lot of churches can become. But we're called to be hands and feet. We're called to be mobile and active, and not just active in a busy sense where you're just going, going, going. Come on, we champion rest here too. That's why everybody, if we carry our weight, people can serve and rest. It's not just busy for the sake of busy. It's not just activity for the sake of activity, but it's intentional, downward mobility, stepping into serving others. And I would just encourage you, jump in. You know, some people get so bogged down into, I got to find the right fit first. And sometimes we can get bogged down into taking inventories of our spiritual gifts, taking Facebook tests, whatever somebody might give you to, to find what your gifts are. And it's good to know your passions. It's good to know how you're wired and how God created you. But you begin to look at Paul's lists about the gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and Ephesians 4. Those are the three main lists, and none of them are identical, which would imply to me that none of them are comprehensive. That the concept is probably a little less technical than we make it out to be. We can sometimes make this discovering of our gifts within the body, this introspective personal affair where we're examining ourselves. But Paul makes it clear that these gifts are for Christ-like servanthood of the body and of the world. Each person is giftedly, but just as importantly, each person is a gift in and of himself to the church and to the world. Sometimes our focus drifts into this wayward concern about identifying gifts rather than, hey, let's simply be a gift to the body. And then trust me, as, as you begin to give yourself to that, you meet a need, you begin to meet someone what your giftings are. Man, when I got uh, saved at 21, I spent a few more months in college, and then I graduated. And if you come to Discovering City Life, you'll find out. Uh, the church that I got saved at planted City Life in Newport News, and there was a guy named Mark McAllister that invited me out because he worked with me. And we were both going to the church. He was like, man, just come out and hang out with the kids. He was over the youth. So for years, I just showed up. I'd give kids rides. I'd move a lot of stuff around, stack chairs, right, just the brute work uh, as a as a young adult, and years later, we'd preach every now and again. Years later, when Nate and Laura took over, we would tag team, go back and forth week to week. And then years later, I started pastoring. Something I never, ever, ever, ever at 21 would have foreseen myself doing. But you get involved and you begin to meet needs and then you'll begin to meet plans and giftings that God has in your life. Just jump in. Man, we don't make you sign a, a, like a 10-year contract like a baseball player when you start serving. If it don't work for you, it doesn't work for you, right? That's just not for you. But jump in. Take the gamble. Because it, 
we're the world champ- champions, again, upward mobility, this idea of, of jumping from one class to the next. What it boils down to a lot of times is to escaping needs and escaping brokenness for comfort. But again, Jesus exercised downward mobility, leaving the comfort of heaven to meet us in our brokenness. And he calls us in the same direction. If I could have the worship team come up, I want to close in worship. But I want to encourage you, have the courage to take the risk, to pick up a towel to serve, to put yourself under the needs of others, to choose self-sacrifice over self-indulgence, to invest in something bigger than yourself, to tackle what needs to be done over our immediate desires, to risk losing our life in order to find it. Again, we talked about last week, do a life, live a life like this for a month, and then ask yourself after a month, man, do I feel more empty or more full? Do I feel more connected to the body or less connected? Do I feel closer to Jesus or further? And you take that risk, you take that gamble, I know your answer will be yes to those questions. Again, Jesus put a towel around his waist. May we not throw in the towel on service, but may we take up a towel and look to serve the body as he did his disciples. You know, Jesus forsook the crown in heaven, and he wore this hat of a servant here in John 13. You know, raw servanthood at its core is just being willing to take whatever responsibility is needed in the moment. Leadership in the world, leadership in the, in the church especially, servant leadership is so often seeing a responsibility and stepping up under it. You do that, you'll be stepping into leadership before you know it. But man, this year, as we get ready for Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving table with our family, we pull up a chair. May John 13 come to mind in those moments. May we call to mind when you pulled up a table with the disciples at the Last Supper. May we remember that you came to make us a part of your family. That we can no longer be slaves to fear but become childs of God. And may we remember you came to serve and model for us this downward mobility, this heart of service. And may we recognize that you bless us with all the blessings we count on Thanksgiving so that we can walk into this higher standard of giving and giving of ourselves. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your life for us. And what's so mind-blowing about that is it says in Romans 5, 8, that you gave your life while we were still sinners. While we were still far from you, we had shown zero interest in you. you. You died for us. Because it says in Ephesians 1, 5, that God wanted to adopt us into his family. And God, I pray tonight as we step into worship that you would assure us again of your love. God, that you are a, a good, good father. God, when we stumble, we fall like Raj fell and hit his face on that root. I didn't look at him and say, you idiot. Right, I picked him up. I cared for him. And God, I just pray that for every person here that feels like they've stumbled, they've messed up, Lord God, I pray that they would have a picture of you like the father of the prodigal son running to them. God, to embrace them, to bring healing, to bring perspective, Lord God. We ask these things. If I could just ask you to stand tonight, we're going to close in worship. But as we sing these words about God our Father, may you see him as God your Father, who doesn't look down on you in scorn or anger, but looks down on you in love. God, shift our perspective again tonight. Remind us of your grace. Remind us of your mercy. Remind us of your love in Jesus. You split the sea so I could walk Child. 
I've no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And then just in the same way, we read from 1 Corinthians 12, where it's talking about being the body of Christ, being his hands and feet, these giftings that he gives us, these roles that he gives us personally. But then it says, at the end of chapter 12, you should earnestly desire the most helpful gifts. But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. Let me show you why we desire these gifts. And it begins to talk about how love is the greatest. Now, if we do all these things, but we don't have love, we're just a clashing gong. We're just a symbol. Bottom line, we're annoying. <laughs> and God, I just pray that as we've spent time meditating on your love tonight, the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made so that you could be Lord over our hearts and draw us into your love, Lord God, I pray that you would work a, a miracle in our hearts, Lord God, where we can love as you love because it takes your spirit. It takes a work in us for, to even be able to love a fraction of the way you did, Lord God. But I pray this Thanksgiving as we're around family members who maybe don't know you, around people who maybe need your love. Maybe they know you, but they're just in a tough season. God, give us, give us your heart to love people. God, as we're going to be surrounded by people this next week who maybe we don't see very often, help us to be a light. Help us to be, uh, as it says in Isaiah 50, an instructed tongue to give strength to the weary. Help our words to be your words. Help our love to reflect your love, Lord God. And we ask that you would, through your spirit, do a work in us so that we can walk in that way and be a light this week. God, we really ask that for every week. But especially for this week, God, as we pull up to the table with family, as we pull up to the table with friends, help us to show your love. Be your hands and feet and minister to those around us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. Come on, if you need prayer for anything, whether it's about being a part of the body of Christ, maybe it's anything. If you're dealing with stress or anxiety like we talked about, I'd love to pray for you. I know Nate's right here, Dean's right here, not to volunteer you on the spot, but if you need prayer, somebody's here to pray for you. And if you felt challenged tonight, convicted to become a, a part of the body, serving the body, there's sign-ups out there. Anthony's right there wearing his hat. Grab him. Grab somebody a Black Kid Life shirt. Otherwise, get coffee. Let's hang out. Coming to Discovery, Discovering City Life. I'll see you in a bit. Take care.